After nearly two months of quarantine, lives are slowly coming back to normal. Whether it is seeing more and more people on the streets, going to work, dozens of them gathering in front of restaurants for their takeaway lunch, or the first individual school consultation in person. It is evident that people are more than ready to come back to a normal regime, get back to their usual routine and their daily pre-quarantine habits. Wouldn't be for the continuous lockdown of the Czech Republic, the things around us seem to be pretty ordinary. With more restrictions loosening up again, we'll also have to deal with a possible second wave of infections coming our way. Although, many people don't seem to be too concerned about that fact and are already happily spending time outside, ditching their face masks for a beer in their hands. Despite all of the recent events, it is naive to think that what has happened until now will have a radical impact on how we perceive the world around us. On the other hand, as Paul B. Preciado states in his Art Forum article, the appearance of COVID-19 could be the gateway to a process of social and political changes that has already existed way before all of this. What does it mean to come back to the life we lived before the pandemic? Is it actually possible to get back into the state of mind we were in before all of this? And how will it change our perception of things and our approach to our daily lives? Until further notice, here's our podcast. And now, onto the show. This week's guest, Andras Chefalvai, will be talking about new utopias, death, and hope. Life is more true than reason will deceive, more secret or than madness did reveal. Deeper is life than lose, higher than have, but beauty is more each than living's all, multiplied with infinity song, if the mightiest meditations of mankind cancelled are by one merely opening leaf, beyond whose nearness there is no beyond. Or does some littler bird than eyes can learn look up to silence and completely sing? Futures are obsolete, pasts are unborn, here's less than nothing's more than everything. Death as men call him, and what they call men. But beauty is more now than dyings when. What have we done to deserve this? Is this the end coming? What have I done wrong? How I stumbled or erred to deserve a fate like this? Who knocks? Yes, I have sinned. Take it. Take all my dignity my deserved life. O death, ask me your questions, ask away, so I can answer. 
Do not hide those questions from me. Not from me. Not from my loved ones. I'm Andras Chifalvai, artist uh, based in Bratislava. And I was uh, thinking about some moments of the current corona crisis and linking it to evolutionary crises and thinking about it a bit. In any crisis, there seem to be two moments that interest me. First is that there are obvious appearances, but what is the real, the moral, the material, the psychological drama? Whether perhaps the problem is not a symptom for a greater problem that could be diagnosed. And then there is a second moment that Well, in some cases, in some urgent cases, like an open bleeding artery, it is important to treat the symptoms very fast, immediately. But then we need to find a more general way to treat the underlying causes. For example, taking out large nails from my mattress. And this is how I was thinking about the current problem. It is uh, definitely interesting to see how fast the world, its uh, tiny pockets, the proudly independent nation-states react to the urgency. It's just questionable whether the speed of reaction attests to a general urgency or the mobilizing power is the threat to life. There has not been many answers to questions of death lately. The great double-blind experiment of our lives uh, goes full speed ahead. Blind to the limitations of a finite resources, we project infinite growth. And blind to our finite thinking organs, we pursue an unkept knowledge and infinite access to the world. Well, crisis could be understood as undermining the pursuit More often than not, they are treated as minor obstacles rather than warning signs that we're heading into a generally wrong direction. Still, we can draw contrast between the emergency of a looming climate catastrophe, emergencies of drastic rise of inequality in a constantly more global world, and impotence, and even if goodwilled, a reluctance to act, a reluctance to act fast, compared, on the other hand, to the speedy actions that we're taking towards bracing against infection. It seems that agreement on measures can be found much faster in the cases of dead bodies on the ground. Mm -hmm. 
than of a future climate aside, which can now only be felt as a few alarming numbers in research papers. Maybe a slight increase in temperature, perhaps signs that a climactic balance might tip over, but we definitely do not feel the gradual changes dramatically. It is often mentioned that evolutionarily, no species is equipped with the heuristic abilities to predict long-term changes and to prepare for them accordingly. The individual seems to be ill-prepared to act upon transformations that happen outside the time frame of their midlife length. We are tiny midlife length creatures. Yet, in evolutionary history, we, we learn about equilibria and then bursts of genetic imagination, sometimes along and sometimes precisely against the grain of extinction events and large ruptures in the Earth history. Creatures, and not individuals, but generations, seem to be guided by larger incentives than what they can possibly perceive. They seem to be genetic ideas that take the future into consideration, sacrificing momentarily the effectivity. Great leaps of evolution are made by contra-environment intuitive, baffling adaptations, or even non-adaptive initiative, not by out-competing others, but by starting to change the nature of the competition itself. Bacteria and algae create a wholly different atmosphere composition. They change the world. Fish embark on land, and they change the world. And dinosaurs, dinosaurs take to the sky. And the question of death looms around all the time. I might die, but what can I do to bring a better future for my brood? For the future to come, asks the fish, asks the sauropod, asks the tree, asks the frog. There seems to be a double standard in how the troubles of the individual of today are treated, compared to the meta-narratives in the story of species, generations or life as a whole. I sense a contradiction in what language we find effective when talking about the future of the individual and when talking about the future to come for all. What language should we use for the future to come? Even as we talk about viruses, the fear of death, it might be maybe my obsession, but I come to realize we are in a kind of trap, a confusion of language for seemingly clear concepts. We use a language we are familiar with for descriptions that are useful for us and have proven to be useful effective even. We use medical language and economic language to 
predict a future in the vicinity of our mid-length lives. But at the same time, and with the same language, we juggle with questions of death, as if it belonged to the same order of descriptions. Oh yes, we are still afraid of death. Most of the crisis is being told from a perspective of the individual. We mount defense mechanisms to save myself from death, or my loved ones. I can very soon react and suffer effects of the absence of surface life. I can give up luxury very soon. And experts of all branches of society agree on what is to be done to lessen a terrible outcome. Microbiology experts and experts on economy suddenly pursue a common goal for stabilizing the future. This is where common descriptions come in. The description is very effective, only a few bleach drinkers suspect some kind of foul play. Suddenly, under the urgent threat, even the anti-vaccine movement bows their head to medicine. Yet we also need to talk about time in connection with reaction time. We see how descriptions can differ. We can say, okay, we know what to do. We know what are the measures for society. We kind of know what is the hidden enemy. And this time it seems they are just enough to contain the attacker. We seem to be on the edge of being almost effective. And at some point, we use our descriptions to, to transform nature, to move matter and create a solution, um, perhaps the vaccine. This time, it seems our descriptions are just fast enough to keep up with the messenger of death. But what happens when the time frame of a death question will be out of our scope? What happens if weather data are out of the scope of our computational power? What happens if a problem is larger than the scope of our descriptive power? What happens when we find ourselves in the middle of a great evolutionary change and we do not even have access to understanding it? There is the language to use in that case. We all know this old MasterCard commercial. The economy world cynically acknowledges there are things, a few things, that money cannot buy. But the rest of the solid base of life rests on the firmament of buying power and goods. Now, is it possible to project a livable future, a future that makes sense when we are under attack by 
an invisibly small entity, and we hardly keep up. And in the middle of an ecologic disaster, where we are almost certainly lacking the speed of being able to take fast measures. The techno-economic dictionary had a very effective 200 years run, but its stewardship, its day-to-day problem-solving, doesn't really enable us to envision a future. It is closer to maintenance than utopia, or a lack of genetic imagination, and we are desensitized to a catonic powers. We learn to ignore those calls, we are baffled by fireworks and magic tricks of the descriptive world, and all at the same time we make all the effort to fill these mirages with true magic in our minds. So when I think about it, my diagnosis is the following. The maintenance solution on the long term and evolutionarily is only dilution. And do not fall into doubt. Because there exists other descriptions of the world that can provide tools to overcome the problem of too much data, the problem of too much world, limited time, too much precision, and short single individual lives. And one of those tools is fiction. Fiction can move in leaps, jump ahead, and what it lacks in precise, short and predictive power, it compensates by the feedback of creating a future for itself. Fiction can be very mobilizing and also a powerful answer to questions of death. The air is is mostly filled with a vision of no future, a lack of positive outcome for all of the population. Most current fiction projects a dystopia, a spoiled future with no power gathered, with no possible language to address death or earth, virus or even our fellow members of humanity. Yes, one has to be careful with fiction because it is a highly powerful mobilizing tool as we see in terrorism. And still, what I believe and what what are the lessons to look at is the dinosaurs, a leap of faith of growing feathers for millions of years not being able to fly, just unsuccessful hopes and dances. And then they took to the sky. My firm belief is that the role of art in the years to come is to provide the fiction, the language for a future, with the use and the misuse of former descriptive language. We need to enable talking about hope, talking about care, communion. We need language for the sacrifice that goes against the norms of survival, against norms of techno-dystopia. Art can find ways of talking about reimagining earthly relationships, providing plausible reorderings and democratization of claims of a wide range of existence. Also perhaps a bit of anthropomorphization in fiction provides a good deal of de-anthropocentrization when we talk about the world in terms of fairy tales to understand that there is a future 
and the future must first be imagined. It's time to be clear. Got news of his passing. And I'm stuck singing here. I want to peel the wallpaper and swing from chandelier. Something to show that I know. It's time to be clear. I can handle what's given. I can make mystery mine. And sing it with feeling, with rhythm and rhyme. And make you all marvel. That this is your time and holler. It's time to be clear. And stop all the moaning and bemoaning of fate. God isn't listening or else it's too late. This is your song and your song it is great. We're singing it's time to be clear. Time to be clear. And leave our old worlds. And build new stories here. Lover, oh lover, please buy me a beer. And bring all your enemies here. This episode was produced by the studio of New Aesthetic, FAMU. Dramaturgy by Martina Tuchny. Editing by Max Weit. Sound design by Daniel Wilczek. Guidance, support, and consulting by Jan Kratochvil and Hinek Alt. Our Instagram is taken care of by Zuzana Marketa Matskova. Host of the show, Ezra Shimek. Special thanks to Andras Chafalvai. Follow our Instagram, Gingerjacks. That is G-I-N dot G-E-R-J-A-C-K-S. See you again next week.